ahead, take your seats and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Well, I wonder what kind of uh, daily planner you keep. I know uh, in a room with a group this size, there's a great number of different ways that you all would probably keep daily plans. Some of you do it electronically, some of you with pen and, and paper, some of you go into more details than others, while, while others might have more general, bigger things on their plans and maybe leave the smaller details off. Sometimes, you know, you might think things are going to go a certain way and then they go an altogether other way. Even, even for those who might be the consummate planner, you know, the, the one who's just so diligent to, to account for every hour or every even half hour or quarter hour of each day to write down in advance what you hope to accomplish. Even you would have to admit that everything doesn't always go according to plan. That is, according to our plans, right? There, there is one whose plans never fail. Amen? Amen. Listen, do you realize that God has a daily planner filled out for each and every one of our lives? Do you realize that every single detail of every single moment has been recorded from before we were ever even born? And our lives never, for not even one moment, will ever deviate from this plan? The psalmist in Psalm 139 and verse 16 says this, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. From time to time, you probably have said these words or heard it said from others in the church, you know, in God's providence, and then we go on to explain how some mysterious circumstances have come together, you know, things that we wouldn't have planned, we wouldn't have been able to plan on our own, have all of a sudden come together, and and we've seen God's mighty hand at work in in bringing so-and-so to such-and-such a place at such-and-such a time, and we say, in God's providence, and and rightly so, I mean, I'm not saying we need to stop doing that, but here's what I am saying, is that rightly thinking about providence, we would say that everything is in, quote, God's providence. Every last detail of our lives. So what I want to look at this morning is is learning to think biblically about providence. Learning to think biblically about providence. Because nothing happens by chance. As far as God's plans are concerned, nothing is an accident. Ultimately, nothing happens because of our willing it to happen. Rather, everything happens under the supreme governance of God. When we talk about the doctrine of providence, we're talking about God meticulously working in all of his creation to accomplish his purposes. God is meticulously working in all creation to accomplish his purposes. That that is what the doctrine of providence says And we find this in God's word. And and no record in the Bible demonstrates this more than what we see in these closing chapters of the book of Genesis. When we study the story of Joseph and his family, what we see as the most distinguishing feature is that everything that happens is ultimately related back to God's guiding hand. This story drips with evidence that God's sovereign will transcends every breath every step, every word, every thought, every deed in this life. And when we understand this, when we understand that that God is unceasingly at work in us and in everybody else, this changes the way we think about what? Everything in life. Everything. So we're going to look at these last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis this morning and And we're going to press play here at the start and we're going to see what God's doing in this story. And at times, of course, we're going to need to press fast forward and and go through some sections a little quicker than others because what I want to do is pause in, in certain places and see how God is revealing to us his providential work in this world. Look at chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. 
These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, which is another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And if we were to keep on reading, we would see that Joseph goes on to have two dreams. Two dreams pointing to one and and the same thing, that his brothers would all bow down to him. And he goes and he shares these dreams with his brothers And the word of God says they hated him all the more. And they were jealous of him. They were jealous of this special robe that the father had gifted him. And they were jealous that their father loved him more than he loved everybody else. And and one day when they were out in the field pasturing the flock, they conspired together with one another to kill him. That's how much they hated their brother. Well, Reuben, the oldest brother, knew that this was not a good idea. And so he said, Let's not lay our hands on our own brother. Let's, let's put him to kill him. Let's, let's rather instead put him in this pit. And, and we read that Reuben had as his plan to rescue Joseph, bring him back to his father. But before he could do that, there was a group of Midianites passing by on their way to Egypt. And the word of God says that Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave into their hands. And then they took his coat They had torn it off of him and they dipped it in goat's blood and they brought it back to their father and they said, see this coat, is is this the coat that you gave to Joseph? And his father wept and said, my son, he's he's dead. He, He must have been torn apart by wild beast and presumed dead. Jacob, Joseph's father, weeps. He's inconsolable. He loves him so much, and now he's gone. And the Word of God tells us that he heads down to Egypt, and he begins many years there. Turn to chapter 39. I want to show you the first verses here in 39. It says, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, another name for the Midianites, who had bought him, sorry, brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So here we see that even though all of this injustice had occurred in Joseph's life. Here he is finding success. He's finding that he has success in Egypt. This is the first place where we explicitly see that God is at work intimately in Joseph's life. And I want you to see that God is at work when we have skill and enjoy success. God is at work when we have skill and enjoy success. Five times in in these verses, Moses, the writer of Genesis, tells us the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It's the Lord who's in this. Right? He didn't have to say it that way, really. He could have said, and Joseph had great success in Egypt. Joseph was very wise. Joseph was a hard worker. And, and so they recognized this. Potiphar recognized this. And he put Joseph over his house. But, but Moses is clear, emphatic, repeatedly wants us to see the Lord is in this. These are the Lord's plans for Joseph. Well, after some time serving Potiphar, 
Potiphar's wife laid her eyes on Joseph. She thought he was an attractive man and she wanted him to come in to her bedroom and lay with him. And he said, no, how can I do that? I'm here in the service of my master. All that he has, he's given to me. I will not take you, his wife. And she persisted, trying to entice him into this sin. And and one day she she had him by her grasp, literally by his clothing, and, and he ran He ran out of the room and and she's holding on to his clothing and she thinks, okay, rather than him go and tell someone what I'm doing, I am going to frame him and say that he has done this evil to me. And she screams and they come running, what's going on? And and she says, this man, he's he's trying to take advantage of me, put him in, in prison. And once again, we see Joseph just being treated unjustly and he finds himself in Pharaoh's prison. But he finds favor again. Look at chapter 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Joseph has success again as a prisoner in Egypt. And after some time, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and his chief baker are sent to prison. We don't know why, but they're in there. They meet with Joseph. They're there together. And one day, one morning, these these, um, chief servants of Pharaoh have, have woken up from having dreams and they're confused about the meaning of these dreams and they, they don't know what it, it could possibly entail. And, and so Joseph notices, he asks them, why are your faces downcast today? And in chapter 40, verse 8, they say to Joseph, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, tell me, I've I got this great ability. No, no, that's not what he says. He, he says, do not interpretations belong to God? Now tell them, please, to me. See, Joseph is able to interpret their dreams. They, they tell them what they saw. He, he tells them what it means, but he, he acknowledges that this is not something in and of himself. This is the Lord working in him. And these men, they go out from prison. The baker is hanged, but the cup bearer is restored to his service of Pharaoh. And Joseph had asked, the cupbearer, he said, when you go before Pharaoh, remember me in this pit. Remember that I didn't do what she said I did. Tell somebody, get me out of here. And yet he was forgotten for two whole years, the word of God tells us. Until one day, Pharaoh himself has two dreams. And he also cannot discern what they mean. And he also sends for uh, magicians, he, he sends for those in his service to come and, and to tell him what do these mean and no one can tell him what they mean. And then that's when the cupbearer says, ha ha, wait, when I was in your prison, I remember there was a man there and I had a dream and he was able to tell me what my dream meant. And so Pharaoh said, send for him, bring him here. I want to know what my dreams mean. And in chapter 41, verse 15, we see that Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. All credit, all glory goes to God for the skill that Joseph has. And and Pharaoh tells Joseph about these seven healthy cows that he sees swallowed up by seven unhealthy cows. And he says, I I also saw seven good ears of corn swallowed up by seven unhealthy ears of corn. What what does this mean? And, And Joseph tells him, here's what it means. It means that there is to come seven plentiful years of harvest followed by seven years of famine. So here's what you need to do, Pharaoh. You need to appoint some wise men over all of the land so that in these next seven years, in these first seven years of abundance, 
there can be a collection made, a, a preservation, so that we can have enough food to get through those second seven years. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, you'll be that man. And effectively, he makes Joseph the prime minister over the whole country. Joseph finds success from Pharaoh. And, and if you see in chapter 41, verse 37, it says that Joseph, his proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And he goes on to give him his ring, and, and he clothes him in, in fine linen, and, and he gives him a special place in, in the chariot march, and people bow down to him. Joseph finds all this success that Pharaoh gives to him, and yet when Joseph describes it years later, he says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Joseph believed hundreds of years before it was written in, in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And maybe you're thinking, well, but yeah, didn't these guys choose out of their own volition to elevate Joseph? I mean, what's going on here? Did they know it was God's plan? Did, did God tell them to do it? What if, what if they didn't like Joseph? What if they didn't want to designate him to these high positions? Then what? Well, perhaps this explanation of God's providence will be helpful for you. It says that God causes all things that happen. But he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices. Choices that have real and eternal results. Exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and significant and real choices, Scripture does not explain to us. But rather than deny one aspect or the other simply because we can't explain how both can be true, we should accept both in order to be faithful to the teaching of all the Bible. So God has his plan, and yet in his perfect power, God is able to cause you and I and, and Pharaoh to make willing choices that they want to make, that we want to make, that concur together so that God's plans are ultimately fulfilled. This is the power of God. Joseph was clearly a strong leader. Clearly he had skills in many different ways. And yet through all of his success, he just kept on giving glory to God. Is it, is it I or, or is it God who, who gets the glory? And, and so often we can leave God out of the story, can't we? We, we can say what's happening in our lives, what we're able to do, the positions and the titles that we hold, and we, we can forget to say it's God in all of this. It's Him. He's doing it. To Him be the glory. Whatever position you hold, maybe it's in the church, maybe it's in your workplace, your home, in, in society. Listen, you are where you are doing what you're doing because God has put you there. It's his plan. Whatever gifts and abilities you have, you have because God gave them to you. Let us not boast as though we didn't receive the gift. We need to be like John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist was the man for a time, right? He, he was there. He was proclaiming. The crowds were coming out to him. He had disciples. He was baptizing. And then along comes Jesus and the attention goes away from John. And his disciples come to him and they, they say, John, look, they're going out to him now. And John's reply to them is, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So if I must decrease so that he can increase, so be it. It's not about me. It's about God and what he's doing in me 
and through me. Paul, the Apostle Paul, had the same disposition as he is talking about his appointment to apostleship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. And we all need to be able to say the same thing. It's by the grace of God that I am what I am. Well, Joseph enters into the service of Pharaoh. He, he is ruling over all the land of Egypt. The seven years of abundance begin, and he begins to collect one-fifth of all the produce of the land. And he stores it up, and he gets ready for the appointed time for when the famine comes, and the famine surely does come. And here we see that God is at work when we are comfortable and when life's hard. God's at work when we're comfortable and when life's hard. I just want to quickly look back at just one small thing that Joseph said when he revealed the truth of Pharaoh's dreams to him. Look at chapter 41, back in verse 25. It says, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Not merely what is about to happen. You see the difference? Not merely that, hey, there's going to be a famine. No, no, what God is about to do. Life's not just about things that are happening. Life is about what God is doing each and every day. In Psalm 105, when the psalmist recounts the story of Joseph, talking about God, he said, he summoned a famine on the land. We see, again, the Lord meticulously at work in his creation. It's God who sends or doesn't send every drop of rain. Every cloud, when we look up in the sky, God put there on that very day. He causes the seed to grow or to not grow. If the sea's calm, it's because God wants it that way. If the waves are crashing in, likewise, it's because God has decided to work in such a way, in such a time and place, in such a person's life. All of life's circumstances, both the relative ease and the difficulties, are all ordained by the Lord to accomplish his purposes. So when everything is going great according to our plan, when everything's going the way we, you know, would have written it down in advance, we say, yes, praise God. But what about when life is hard? You know, these, these Egyptian people, during these seven years of famine, in order to eat, they had to give up everything they had. Everything else needed to go. First their livestock and then their land. All so that they could just stay alive for another day. Surely they were disappointed in how things were going. What disappointments might you be facing in your life today? What's interrupting your comfort? I think it's appropriate as we are looking at a famine right now, maybe to just think about health. Health can be such a, a struggle and trial in many of our lives. Maybe it's you personally, maybe it's in someone that you love. I know for me, my health is what can cause me to be discouraged at times, to think, I wish it wasn't like this. And you know, it's, I get off track as soon as I forget about God's providence. And I was trying to think this morning, is, is there anything else other than being reminded of God's providence that brings me out of that place of discouragement when I'm not well? God working in my life. And when I remember that, wait, God's planned it this way. God has decided how I'm going to feel today. God's going to decide whether there's answers or not answers from the doctors or the tech. Then I can rest knowing that he's in perfect control of my life and things are going exactly according to his plan. You know, Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. 
And he's talking about contentment. Contentment in knowing that the Lord is doing what the Lord sees is best. And sometimes that's going to be, for us, a famine. And when we consider God's providence, we, we have to also at the same time remember God's attributes, his wisdom, his, his power. And one of the, the biggest things about God we need to remember in his providence is his goodness. God is good always. God is good always. And, and that means if he's working out everything according to his perfect plans, he's doing it for good. Everything is for good. Is God still good when life is hard? That's what we need to ask. And then we need to ask this, well, how might God be working in this to bring about an ultimate good? And I would just submit to you that there is an infinite, yes, infinite amount of possibilities for how God can be working through hard times in life for good. We, we could all just sit here for hours upon hours upon hours with a notepad and a pen just coming up with possible ways that suffering could lead to a good plan of God being fulfilled. We have to remember that. We have to remember that God is at work. In this case, he's at work to preserve Joseph's family. We see at the end of chapter 41 that the famine was over all the earth. You know what that means? The famine had reached Joseph's family back in Canaan as well. And so we, we continue to see in this story that Jacob gathers his sons together when they've run out of food. And he says, okay, what are you waiting for? I've, I've heard that there's food for sale in Egypt. Go get us some. Go buy some of the grain that we've heard is being provided from Egypt. And he, he sends 10 of the remaining 11 sons down to Egypt. He says, I'm not sending Benjamin. Benjamin is jo- Joseph's only brother. I've already lost Joseph. I've lost their mother. I'm keeping Benjamin here. The rest of you go get us some food. And in uh, chapter 42, verse 6, we see that Joseph was the governor over all the land and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Isn't this ironic? That in God's providence, the very dream, right? When, when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, they said, now let's see what will come of this dreamer. They, they thought they were subverting the, the dreams. And, and by selling him into slavery, they were actually fulfilling and actualizing these very dreams. They come and they bow before him. Now, they don't know at this point in time that this is their brother, but he knows it's them. He recognizes them. And, and the story tells us that he treats them harshly. He, he accuses them of being spies and he, and he asks them, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And he imprisons them for three days and, and then he tells them, okay, here, t- purchase your grain, go back, but leave one of, your, one of you is staying here because I want to see this other brother. I want to show that you, you're not a liar, that you're not a bunch of, of spies. So go get your young brother, bring him here, show me him. And he sends them away. And, and as they're going or before they leave, they have this little sidebar conversation. And they don't know that Joseph can understand their language, right? And, and they talk about what they did to him. And they said, now our guilt is upon us. This is happening to us because what we did many years ago to our brother. And Joseph hears these words and he's overwhelmed with emotion and he turns away and he weeps. And then he says, okay, you stay here. He takes Simeon. He has his servants fill their sacks with grain. And unbeknownst to them, he says, put the money back as well. And he sends them home. To, and they, they get home. They tell their father, we need to bring Benjamin back. He, the, the man there has told us he's kept Simeon. And then they open their, their bags of grain and they find all the money there and they, and they must have put their hands on their heads and thought, what have we done? What, what is going on here? What is, what is happening? 
And Jacob says, no way I'm sending Benjamin down there. First, now Joseph's gone, and, and then Simeon, and now you want me to send Benjamin? Forget it. And they, they stay in, in the land of Canaan, and they eat the food that had been provided for them, but, but then things change, right? They, they run out of food, and they're starving again. And Jacob says, go, buy more food. And the brothers this time say, no, we're not going without Benjamin. See, they've been warned. If, if they come back without Benjamin, they're walking into certain death. And so they convince their father, Jacob. And he says, okay, but if you're going to go, bring presents. What, what little almonds and pistachios and some of these other things we have, bring and give to this man in Egypt. And, and next we see that God is at work even when we are unsure how it will all turn out. God is at work when we're unsure how it will all turn out. Look at chapter 43, Jacob sending his sons away. In verse 14, he says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. You know, a famine will change things, right? He, he thinks, well, if you don't go, we're all going to die anyway, so... Might as well take this risk. Go. So much uncertainty. You know, we, we write these things down in our daily planners, but we, we don't know how it's going to go, ultimately. And what we see here is that Jacob, his hope is not in this man in Egypt, right? He, he doesn't just say, hey, maybe this guy will show you mercy. No, he prays to the Lord, may God Almighty... May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. He recognizes that the outcome lies ultimately in the hands of God and God alone. And he calls him God Almighty, El Shaddai, the God of all power. And as I saw that this week, I couldn't help but to think how in God's providence, just last week, right, we're here looking at Ephesians chapter 3 where it says that God is able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That is our powerful God. That is the, the God to whom we must pray. That is the God who is working in each and every heart, in each and every circumstance. Do our prayers have anything to do with the providence of God? Absolutely they do. Our prayers are included as part of the providence of God. When we're unsure how it will all turn out, when we don't know, you know, will there be a buyer for my home? Will there be an employer to offer me a job? Will, will, will they respect me? How's it going to happen? How's this going to go? God is ultimately in charge of what happens. Whether it goes the way we would have planned or not, God's providence is working itself out in all things toward his intended purposes. So the brothers go and they are seen by Joseph and Joseph tells his servants, prepare a feast. Here they come and, and he sees that Benjamin's with them and, and the brothers come and they are reunited with Simeon. And, and they don't know how it's going to go because of the money that was in the sacks and, and everything just turns out okay for them. Joseph prepares a feast and, and, he, and he feeds his brothers and he feeds Benjamin lavishly and they're all looking in amazement, the text says. What's going on here? And Joseph fills their sacks a second time with grain and again a second time he tells his servants, put the money back as well. And then he adds something extra here. He says, take my silver cup and put it in Benjamin's sack and send them away. And, and so that's what they do. They, they go home. They're on their way home, I should say. And Joseph sends a steward after them. Wait, 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 guys. Hold up. The cup's missing. One of you must have taken it. And, and of course, they deny it. No, no, we would Why would we do that? We, we wouldn't do that. And said, yes, you did. You did it. One of you has the cup. And, and they say, if, if any one of us has the cup, we'll all go back and be servants in Egypt. 
So they, they start to open up their sacks and, and they begin, you know, in this suspenseful way with the oldest brother and they're opening up and there's no cup, there's no cup, there's no cup and they come all the way down to the youngest, Benjamin, and they open the sack and gasp, there's the cup. Oh no. What is happening? And they get brought, ushered back into Joseph's presence and, he's, and he says, what, what happened here, guys? And they say, we're guilty. We're guilty. They know they're not guilty of stealing the cup, but they know they're guilty of what they did to their brother. And they just say, we're guilty. We'll be your servants. We'll, we'll stay and be your servants. And, and Joseph says, no, you know what? Just the one who took the cup, Benjamin, I'll take him to be my servant. The rest of you can go. And it's at this point that Judah says, Judah steps up and he says, listen, I have to tell you our story. And he begins to unfold to Joseph, Joseph's own story. We had this brother. Our father loved him and, and we sold him into slavery and, and we, we went back and, and it crushed him. It crushed our father. And, and now here's Benjamin and, and we cannot go back without Benjamin. Our father will die. And Judah says, let me take his place. Let me stay instead and, and Joseph's hearing all of this and again the emotions just overwhelm him. He sees now how things are different, the care among the brothers, the, the care for their father. And in verse or sorry, chapter forty five, verse one, says that Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried Make everyone go out from me. And, and here he refers to all the Egyptians. He keeps his brothers there. He, he says, so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. This is a masterpiece. One writer said, a masterpiece of recognition of and submission to the sovereignty of God, i.e., his providential rule over the, the affairs of life, both good and bad. See, what we see here is that God doesn't just see into the future and know what's going to happen. Nor is it that God is just really, really, really good at reacting fast. No, Joseph said, it wasn't you who sent me here. It was God. Ultimately, it wasn't your decision. God is at work, accomplishing his purposes according to his plan. Joseph thinks about how he was unreasonably hated by his brothers, how he was treacherously enslaved, falsely accused, wrongly imprisoned, forgotten about in the pit. And in all these great injustices that Joseph faced, he recognized that it was God working in all of this. Later in chapter 50, verse 20, again, Joseph's going to say, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, maybe you're thinking this morning, well, isn't this quite extraordinary? I mean, could it be that things like this are very um, 
unique, if I could say that. You know, this is, after all, we're talking about the patriarchs. We're, we're talking about uh, people who were used greatly by God. Could, maybe this kind of thing is limited to just them. And that's not the way that God works in everybody's life. Well, I just want to offer a couple of scripture passages for you, if that's what you're thinking. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. This is universal. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God is working in all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians chapter 1. There's nothing excluded from God's providential, meticulous care over his creation. In God's infinite wisdom and power, even the acts of sinful men are part of God's plan to accomplish his will. But his brothers did sell him into slavery, right? Well, God was bringing about his plan through the willing choices of real human beings who were morally accountable for their actions. Again, this happens in a way that we can't wrap our minds around, but that doesn't mean it's not how God works. Because God tells us that's how he works. God caused the brothers. He, he caused the, the woman. He, he caused the jailer. He, he caused Pharaoh to make the decisions that they made. To do what they did by their own will. You say, well, you know, we're talking about sin here. We're, we're talking about a group of, of brothers acting so heinous, so wicked toward Joseph that they would sell him to strangers and say, we're done with you for, forever and then bring a lie back to their father about what happened. Like, that's so dark. There must be, if God's behind all this, there must be darkness in God. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, 5. But this is sin we're talking about. If God's behind this, God must have somehow tempted them or enticed them into sin. God tempts no one to sin. James 1, verse 13. See, God is in all of this even when we suffer at the hands of sinful men. And he does so, remaining completely pure and innocent. And he's carrying out his good purposes. Chapter 45, this is the climax of the story. This is when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and he proclaims that all of this is God's doing. And the climax of this story must point us to the climax of the story of all of human history. Where God planned the most wicked sin imaginable. Where God planned the ultimate injustice, where the only perfect one would be condemned to a cross of wood as a criminal. Peter and John explaining what happened with Jesus in Acts chapter four, they said, Truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with all the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Everybody was in on it to put Jesus to death, and they all wanted to do it, and, and yet, listen, to do whatever, Lord, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God takes what is sinful and he uses it for good. God planned the execution of his son so that he could provide forgiveness for sinners. Jesus obeyed the will of God, submitting himself in obedience to God's plan where he would be taken by sinful men and nailed to the cross so that he could redeem a people for his own possession. A people who would trust in him for forgiveness of sins. Here we're called to exercise a great trust in God. And if God 
can use the most wicked act of sin, if he could plan it all for his glory and for our good, then, then we should be able to look at our own lives when we suffer at the hands of sinful men and we can declare that God is working here to accomplish his good pleasure, his good purposes. And so we trust in the Lord as we look past the circumstances. And I'm not saying just cavalierly just move on from, from that which is so hard in your life. But listen, right thinking about God's providence leads us to a peace in our hearts that can be found by trusting in the Lord who's not absent in our suffering from sin, but very much present in it all. We don't always know why. We don't always know what God is doing. We, we don't always know how. This is all working together for good. You know, when, you need to realize this. When, when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers here, this is 22 years after they sold him into slavery. For 22 years, Joseph doesn't know why they did this. And yet, here he is, and he says, here, now we know what God is doing and maybe God will show us soon maybe he'll show us later maybe he'll show us in heaven but we need to trust that God is at work even in our suffering at the hands of sinful men at this time Joseph sends his brothers he says go get everyone now go get my father go get the wives go get the kids Bring them back to Egypt. There's still five more years of this famine and I'm going to provide for you a good place to dwell here in Egypt. Go tell my father that I'm alive. So they do. They, they come to Jacob. Joseph, your son, is alive and well in Egypt. And God tells Jacob, go, you'll see Joseph and I will make of you a great nation. And they went and all of Jacob's offspring, they went down and father and son are reunited after so many years. And arrangements are made for, for Joseph's family. Pharaoh's in. He's like, yeah, let's, let's provide for them. And we see that God is at work here in, in all of this to bring about his good purposes. Jacob recognizes God's providential hand in his life. Next, I want to see that God is at work when we experience surprising pleasures. Like Jacob never expected this, right? Look at chapter 48. Chapter 48, verse 11. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. God has let me, right? He didn't leave God out of it. He knew God was in it. It wasn't like, Oh, and now I get to see your face. As though resurrected from the dead, he sees his son after 22 years. And at the end of his life, he blesses Joseph's sons and he, he says, he describes God. Look at verse 15. He blessed Joseph and he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. May we say the same thing. God is our shepherd. He is guiding us. He is leading us each and every day of our lives through the ups and through the downs. Let us be thankful and not forget that everything is from the Lord. Jacob, he goes on after this to die and his sons, they bury him in, in the land of promise and then they come back to Egypt and Joseph's brothers were told at this point there's some fear. Okay, now that our father's gone, is this when our brother will exact vengeance upon us for what we did to him? And, and Joseph says, no, I told you. Listen, I told you, God meant this for good. Joseph constantly throughout his life was looking beyond himself to what God was doing. He understood that there was a bigger picture right up to his own death, his own dying words. Look, flip over to chapter 50. Verse 24, Joseph says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Here we see that God is at work when we anticipate the promise yet to come. Lastly, God is at work 
when we anticipate the promise yet to come. Joseph put all his hope in God doing what he said he would do. Next on the divine timetable is the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 15 where Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham was told, your people will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and they will be servants for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on that nation and afterward they will come out with great possession. That's what we see in the book of Exodus. Everything, listen, everything is going according to plan. You see that? God's plans never fail in every life, in every detail. God is directing everything. He's working in everything so that his story is coming to pass. This is what we see in Joseph and his family's life. A young man sinned against, suffers according to God's great plan so that the tribe of Judah, Joseph's brother, would be preserved and a lion would come forth and would prove to be a lamb-like lion. And by his suffering and death, he would ransom a people for his own possession. See how this story is all about Jesus? This story points to Jesus in God's providence. He's using Joseph and his family to make way for the Savior of the world. It's always all about Jesus. Every single day, it's all about Jesus. This story is about us, too. In God's providence, we are linked to this story Because, listen, if if Jacob's family starves to death, then God is a liar, there's no redeemer, and we all end up in hell. But there's hope. There's hope. God always brings his perfect plans to pass. And when we understand God's providence, we can look ahead to the promise of God in Christ, knowing that no matter what our daily planner looks like, how, how it all unfolds, it's God's plan for our lives unfolding, just as he intended for it to unfold. And the surpassing love of Jesus Christ is being put in everything on great display. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before your presence, having seen this morning in your word a greater glimpse of who you are. God, your majesty your power, your wisdom. Lord, how you can do all of this, we cannot understand, but Lord, we believe and we ask help our unbelief. God, help us to see your hand working in our lives each and every moment. God, help us to submit to your providence. Help us to think rightly, Lord, about how our lives are unfolding. And give you all the glory and all the praise and help us to trust you as we look forward to the day when we will see our Savior and we will praise him for eternity for the love that he has shown us here in this life. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.